Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Maggie Shaw, editor for the American Journal of Managed Care. On this episode of Managed Care Cast, we speak with Dr. Tom Lay and Dr. Linda Wastilla, lead and senior authors respectively of Patterns of Opioid Use in Commercially Insured Patients with Cancer, which was published in the May issue of the American Journal of Managed Care. They took up their investigation after finding that most previous similar studies of opioid use focused on problems with opioid use among general populations and that patients with cancer are an often overlooked population where opioid use is concerned. They sought a greater understanding of which patients with cancer are at risk for undertreatment and who is at risk for a substance use disorder. Overall, they believe that policies concerning opioid misuse need strengthening while continuing to address the genuine pain needs of patients with cancer and that they need to balance the benefits of opioid prescribing with the risks. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Wastella and Dr. Lay. Can you please both introduce yourselves and tell us about your work? Sure, um, I'll go first. Um, my name is Dr. Wastella and I've been a professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore for 21 years. But before that, I was at Brandeis University. The research I've been doing has always focused on mental health and substance use disorders and the medications used to treat them with a focus on vulnerable populations. Lately, I've been doing, lately meaning the last, 12 years, I guess I've been focusing on the geriatric population and do a lot of work with that. Um, One of my big roles at the University of Maryland Baltimore School of Pharmacy is to mentor doctoral students. And I am so pleased and honored to have been the uh, mentor and advisor for the lead author here, Dr. Lei. Thank you, Dr. Wasia. Hi, my name is Tam Lei. I am a former doctoral trainee from the Department of Pharmaceutical Health Service Research at the University of Maryland in Baltimore. I had the pleasure to work with my mentor, Dr. Wastler, uh, for almost five years, uh, focusing on um, the, the, the work that she's just mentioned, uh, the robot evidence and health policy research of substance abuse, psychiatric disorder, and COPD. Uh, I recently graduated and joined AstraZeneca and continue working on robot evidence and health outcome research for respiratory therapeutic area. It is my great pleasure to be here and uh, thank you for the invitation, Maggie. Can you tell us about your study? In light of the recent opioid pandemic in the US, policy addressing the issues have been linked to reduction of opioid prescribing. While most studies in the literature have focused on opioid overuse in chronic non-cancer pain patients, there's limited understanding available about how the current prescribing policy affect opioid use for cancer pain management. So in this study, we characterize the patterns of opioid use in um, almost 200,000 cancer patients. The population is nationally representative of commercially insured individuals in the US. We describe the patterns of opioid use, including the proportions of patients with any use, total day supply, duration of use, and morphine equivalent dose. 
We also study the factors that are associated with opioid prescribing in these cancer patients. We found that fewer than half of these patients had opioid prescription for the past two years following cancer onset. A relatively small portion of these patients, about 2.5%, had potentially problematic opioid use, meaning high daily dose. We also found that strongest factors that are linked to increased opioid use was the presence of prior use. Um, and if they have um, used non-opioid pain treatment, um, certain cancer sites, for example, head and neck cancer, lung cancer, and breast cancer. We also found that metastatic cancer and select uh, comorbid condition, such as arthritis, COPD, and substance use disorder are the main factor that are associated with increased opioid use. Why is it important to understand opioid prescribing practices in the context of the ongoing opioid epidemic in the United States, particularly in light of recent news that opioids led to 77,000 plus overdose-related deaths in 2021? I um, think that this is always important to look at uh, the prescribing pact the prescribing practices and the utilization practices actually, which is what I tend to look at the, of dispense uh, prescriptions. But one thing to understand is that the 2021 data are relatively fresh. But this I do know, most of the overdoses or at least many of the overdoses that we saw this year occurred with the illicitly obtained fentanyl derivatives, uh, namely carfentanil and sufentanil. And thus the prescribed opioids may have actually played a much smaller role in 2021 overdoses than what we have seen in um, our time period, which went through 2013. Um, we did find that opioid-related overdoses did spike. Well, not we in this study, but in general, opioid-related overdoses did spike in 2021. And my colleagues and I have speculated that this turned to illicit opioids because these fentanyl uh, spiked uh, products are illicit. They're on the street. They're not from pharmacists or the medical profession. Um, might have been done due to two reasons. One is the, the difficulty in accesses, accessing adequate medical care during the pandemic. There's been a lot of pent-up demand and a lot of inability to actually meet with physicians and even get to your pharmacist because of lockdowns and all that good stuff um, during the pandemic. We also wonder how the spike in anxiety and depression and other uh, mental health diagnoses during the pandemic may have spiked opioid seeking. We certainly saw a huge boost in alcohol and cannabis use over the pandemic, and we're still experiencing that. Um, and so there's just now just beginning to be emerging research from others who are starting to look at the role of opioids in, uh, during the pandemic in, in both illicit and both pharmaceutical. As previously mentioned, one of your principal findings was just a small proportion, 2.5% of potentially problematic opioid use. On the one hand, this is a positive, but on the other hand, can you provide more detail on the factors that might influence problematic opioid use among patients with cancer or cancer survivors? Yeah, absolutely, Maggie. Um, first of all, I wanna raise one issue and that is the whole idea of what constitutes problematic use. It's a kind of a definitional hot mess, if you will. And ideally we would assess problematic use with every patient in every situation rather than looking at means and averages and algorithms and such. 
Over the three decades I've been doing work in this area, definitions have indeed been the most controversial and difficult aspects of trying to understand when necessary use kind of strays into what we would call problematic use. And so when we use the term problematic use, um, and even when we measure it using, you know, overdose and um, MEDDs and all that, there really is no way to say what's the cutoff, what is the cutoff to, to constitute problematic use. So I just put that out there. It's something that I've struggled with for many, many years. That said, prescribers and dare I say pharmacists who dispense opioid prescriptions could benefit from a more comprehensive understanding of the factors, especially the clinical ones, that place a patient at risk for developing opioid use, abuse, dependence, and other adverse sequela when they're prescribed opioids for pain. At this point, provider perceptions of, of risk factors tend to focus on, on sociodemographic factors, such as age, sex, race, ethnicity, payment source, et cetera. The providers are, thankfully, becoming increasingly aware that uh, opioid naivete, the concomitant use and or history of use of other CNS active medications and mental health and pain histories also play a factor in patients' development of problematic opioid use. And um, that's a great, that's great that many physicians are starting to ask these questions. What's your history? Are you on other medications? Are you taking cannabis, et cetera? As we note in our paper, most studies have looked at problem use in the general populations, not those with a cancer diagnosis in which opioid use for pain management is not only typically ex accepted, but also expected. Thus, what we've done and what the few cancer, very few of the cancer studies have done looking at opioid use is we've controlled for cancer site and stage. And while the measures we use are somewhat rudimentary just because of the, the, the nature of the data, the claims data, we are helping to develop, I think, a more precise clinical picture of use and problem use in this overlooked population. And briefly, going back to the risk factors of other uh, risk factor when I talk about other CNS active medications, it's important to consider the use of sedatives in particular, um, including muscle relaxants and benzodiazepines um, as contributory toward opioid problem use and overdose. In combination, these drugs enhance each other, the sedative properties of each other. And in prior work, we found that. Um, more than a third of all opioid dependency, as well as overdoses in our, in our work with Maryland, have included multiple drugs, other drugs in conjunction with opioids. Individuals that are diagnosed with cancer tend to experience moderate to severe pain. And these folks often will use high dose opioids and use them chronically. And of course, we found uh, about two and a half percent of um, our population had high dose opioids measured at greater than um, 90 um, milligram equivalent daily dose. Of course, um, the use of opioids, both in terms of dose and duration, um, varies with the cancer site and stage. Bone cancers can be horribly, can horribly painful, as can cancers affecting the pancreas and the head and sinus, for example. Even though we studied the newly diagnosed cancer in patients, we, do, we measure individuals as they present for diagnosis. And this means individuals seek medical treatment at different stages of cancer development. So patients who are diagnosed at later stages and those who are experiencing painful metastases, they're most likely to receive any opioid and more of them at higher doses. That said, I think our finding of 2.5% of patients who used opioids at high dose um, requires further research and one that provides greater clinical specificity, specificity and would benefit from using data other than claims data, perhaps using a perspective approach as well. 
in the last few years, there's been growing evidence that cancer and non-cancer patients with pain are going both undertreated and undermanaged, which loops back to my original concern that definitions are so inadequate to truly sum up the pain and substance use propensity experiences of patients in observational data. At best, our work and other studies such as ours provide a snapshot of things clinicians should consider in their practices um, in order to optimize the care of their cancer patients. Another finding you highlight is that opioid users were more likely to live in the South. Can you tell us about why the South in particular has more opioid users? Um, in this study, we consider the roles of multiple factors, uh, including uh, racial, sex, and clinical factors that, that are associated with opioid use. The South region could be proxy for other unmeasurable factors, uh, for example, rural, urban area, uh, other social um, status, access to healthcare, workforce, or patterns of opus prescribing in clinical practice um, that we, we know for um, a fact that our, our main predictor for opiate use. Uh, we also know that cancer rates are higher in the Midwest and the South regions, and that uh, could be interacting uh, and be a contributing factors for the, uh, the increased prescription of opioids in the South for these patients. And if I could just offer another observation, um, as well contextually, and that is um, opioid use, at least problematic opioid use, began in, in the South, in the Appalachian area, um, and spread from there. And in large part, it was because people uh, had many uh, problems from working in hard occupations, such as coal mining, et cetera. And there's, you know, with the whole Sackler thing coming out, there's been uh, a lot of uh, material that's come out suggesting that that's where pharmaceutical marketing occurred, at least was targeted. So I think our time period was when opioid problematic use and overdose was starting It's starting to uh, peak or was probably maybe at the beginning of the peak. So that's part of the reason I think we saw it in the South. It has spread to other parts of the country as well. But that was, I think, another thing to think about contextually is um, if you look at geographic analysis, you would see that uh, over time that it started in that strip of the South going into uh, Ohio, the, the eastern and mid parts of Ohio, and uh, then spread from there. And it's about that time period as well. Did any of your study findings surprise you? We found that number of opus prescriptions, total day supply, and morphine equivalent dose um, that was lower than a prior report. So um, this inconsistency, although it's not like a big surprise, but it could be due to the differences in study design, uh, time window that we use to measure the opiate use and the unique characteristic of the population that we study. Another observation is that in our study, opiate use in um, the cancer populations is about 49% which is slightly lower than the uh, reported prevalence of pain in patients with cancer um, in, in um, systematic review literature, uh, about over 50%. Uh, with the, the data that we use in this study, it is not possible to look into the granularity of, of whether the pain management with opiate is adequate or overused for its patients. 
um, but it looked like you know there's an, an um, unbalanced uh, in terms of the, the prevalence of opiate use versus the prevalence of pain. So this is uh, an area that definitely require further research uh, from our perspective to see whether the management of the pain is adequate or, as, uh, or under management. And if I could just uh, briefly note that one of the things that I found interesting was that most studies have found that mental illness or psychiatric conditions are correlated with um, opioid use. And we didn't really see that. And I don't know if we'd see it if we had done more analyses on the problematic use, looking at that on the right-hand side of the equation. But that was a, you know, that was interesting to me. And I, I, I part of it is it might be the population. The IQVIA population is tends to be a healthier population. They've got employer-sponsored healthcare insurance, and and most populations that are studied in this are tend to be Medicare or Medicaid populations. So. And it might be healthier, the mental health, um, there might be mental health carve outs in some of the plans. I have no idea, but I, I was a little surprised about that. Needs more study. What must lawmakers and medical professionals consider when formulating policies to address the opioid crisis in the general population versus individuals who have legitimate pain concerns, both in a clinical sense and as affected by social determinants of health? Well, Maggie, that's the million-dollar question, um, and it's 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 this almost century-old problem. Ever since they started having problems with uh, opium out in California, and California started policies, they started the first prescription monitoring program in, in the country back in the 30s, 1930s, not the 2030s, the 1930s. Um, and the the problem is, you know, what is the balance between appropriate and inappropriate use of opioids, and for that matter not just opioids, but all controlled medications. Our study suggests that in a population for whom pain management practices involving opioids are, are likely warranted, further investigation of undertreatment should be in, conducted, as well as looking at the determinants of high-risk use. You can't look at one without looking at the other. And so many studies tend to have um, a perspective of, let's look at what's wrong with the opioid prescribing and, and let's, for, for pain patients in terms of under management and other studies like, let's look at what's wrong with opioid prescribing in terms of uh, heightening substance use. Anyway, such studies should try in the future, should try to get more refined clinical data as well as medical histories of individual patients. I've been using administrative data for a long, long time, uh, 22 decades at least, um, but they have definitely great administrative data such as what we use here. Great for getting some preliminary work out, looking at some foundational work. And I was really thrilled we could get some specificity around cancer site and stage and the, with these data. But we really need to do more in that area. The provider could then, if we had that data, we could do the research and then we could be able to provide providers with a greater specificity and understanding which of their patients might be at risk for undertreatment for their pain and which patients might be at risk for developing a substance use disorder. It's going to require a lot more refinement of our methods and of our data. To be honest, though, I do feel like there are patient populations that are discriminated against when in receiving opioid medications and that these discriminatory practices are often based on some of these so-called social determinants, age, sex, payment source, and of course, race and ethnicity. And that's because these social determinants are the ones that are usually collected in data and be the data be from clinical trials or from claims. And we know that each of these measures is a proxy for so many other aspects of the patient, his or her health experience, uh, experience with healthcare systems and with providers, whether they have continuity of care, 
um, the co whether they have coexisting physical and psychiatric health conditions and whether there's a history of such in their family, their educational status, their income, their substance use history and, and, and sort of the proliferation of substance use around where they live and so on. It just goes on. So it's like, you know, there's been good, really excellent qualitative work done in this area, but it's really hard to, to match the qualitative work with the quantitative work. And, and that's a real struggle. So it's, it's, it's a continual process. But anyways, for the policymaker end, policymakers, um, they really can't take into consideration the patient level factors, nor they can take into account the unique provider-patient relationship. It's just the nature of policy. Policy looks at the big picture. They look at it from a high level. They don't get in the weeds like providers and like us relatively nerdy researchers. We get in the weeds. For this reason, opioid use policies, such as prescription monitoring programs, which are probably the foundational policy in this country and which have a presence in every state. That's why these policies are so blunt. Such policies by design can deter prescribers and patients from obtaining necessary pain medications. As well, these policies allow individuals at risk from and or who actively seek control of medications for non-medical reasons. In, in an ideal world, policymakers would try to consider the need for individualized assessment and treatment of pain with opioids for all patients, not just those with cancer, and how that uh, interaction occurs in the prescriber's clinical practice. This is difficult to do, of course, given the expansive reach of prescription monitoring programs and other policies, where every controlled prescription is scrutinized at some point by an administrative force, be it public health or law enforcement. Just knowing such scrutiny can happen may deter patients from receiving opioids under medical supervision to obtaining uh, opioids on the street, which might be What's why, uh, which is where we run into the tremendous problem of prescription opioids and heroin that are spiked with fentanyl derivatives, which can be a huge driver of oversized overdose deaths. Personally, I would like, as a policy person, I've got my degree in policy, I'd love to arrive at policy that takes a compassionate view of both individuals with unmitigated pain and those with developing or full-blown substance use disorders. I'd love to see policy where insurance routinely pays for non-pharmacologic pharmacologic pain uh, treatments, such as TENS and acupuncture. I'd love to see policy where substance use, substance use disorder treatment is widely available and where individuals with substance use disorders can safely manage their substance use without criminal prosecution. But that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> Um, I, I just want to echo what Dr. Wasila had mentioned, that it's really a, a very challenging issues that have been looked into for decades. And I think um, cancer pain is, itself is unique, but we should put the policy in the context of a more complete view. Um, uh, we know that uh, much of the opioids crisis issue coming out from the prescriptions uh, go together with prior history of substance use, or with you know, multiple prescription of, of other drugs that, that increase the risk of overdose. Um, so cancer patients, many of them uh, would, would have uh, comorbid conditions, uh, have prior history, um, and, and they don't have just uh, you know, cancer pain alone. So at, at one uh, side, we, we do need to have a, a policy that, that is unique for cancer pain management in the context of opioids crisis. But on the other side, I think a more complete view um, 
in term of policymaker that ensure that, that we consider the multiple aspect of, of the care for cancer patient take into, into the account of multiple medication use, or multiple um, comorbidities, uh, and the prior history of substance use. I think that be very helpful um, to, to fine tune the policy and, and to better balance the benefit and the risks of the, the, the opioid management for cancer patients. Well, that was the last question I had. Before we say goodbye, are there any closing thoughts either of you would like to add? Um, before closing our conversation, um, I would like uh, to have a closing thought that we are seeing a new wave of rise in opiate-related debt in the U.S. for the last four to five years. Um, so the policy to address the issues will continue to be strengthened. At the same time, we face a challenge of how to adequately manage the pain for cancer patients without costing the high risk uh, prescriptions. So continue to fine tune the initiative to balance the benefits and the risks of opioid prescription for cancer pain management would be very needed. And I would just like to say, um, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you, Maggie. And I'm always thrilled to be able to uh, work with one of my favorite colleagues and one of my favorite topics, the area of opioid policy. And um, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you. Well, I want to thank you both for taking the time to speak with me today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Maggie. Thank you. For all of us at AJMC.com, thanks for listening. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.